1: I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. You hear us Sunday afternoons at 5 on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. And we're also available on podcast, just to give you an update on that. And if you're on iTunes, you can get all of our podcasts for free, or you can also get them on your Android phone through some service who I can never remember. Player FM. Player FM. That's Carol Zernial, nationally known gerontologist who also... Uh, spends a lot of her time as board chair for the National Council on Aging. She's executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation, and she can always remember Player FM.
2: I know. That's the only one I can remember. I know we're podcasting on all the platforms, and there's like five others. That one I can remember. All
1: right. Well, cool. And uh, there's no charge for that, by the way, and you get all of our shows going back as long as we've been doing this. So we've got a great guest coming up. We, we saw her at the Caregiver SOS Summit in the fall. Carol Birch is an attorney here in San Antonio who specializes in elder law.
2: You know, Carol, besides her wonderful first name, is absolutely one of my favorite people here in San Antonio. Um, she's done several caregiver teleconnection sessions for us, um, our telephone support program for caregivers. She spoke at our summit. Uh, And we think highly of her and are thrilled to have her, you know, reach out to all the caregivers here on Caregiver SOS.
1: And she has uh, chosen a specialty in a field uh, that is exploding because (laughs) we're all getting older.
2: I know. So we'll have to ask her if business is good.
1: We'll find out in just a minute. She has graciously come into the studio and we'll talk with her. But before we do that, speaking of getting older, you have a fabulous list. Of people turning seventy in twenty sixteen.
2: I know because I know everyone is wondering who's gonna be seventy this year. I woke up said to
1: my wife this morning, I said, Gina, who's turning seventy? No,
2: a lot of times we'll get lists of who's turning sixty five, but seventy, I know there's something bona fide about turning seventy, especially when you're, you know, a politician or you're a movie star. So, you know, at the top of this list is someone who recently retired because she's turning seventy, and that would be Cher.
1: Well, she didn't retire because she's turning 70.
2: Well, there was a rumor that, you know, she was a little afraid that, I don't know if she's afraid more plastic surgery was not a good thing. Now, that may be. But I'm so sorry I missed her last show in Las Vegas because they had costumes out front of the theater where where she was performing at Caesars, and it looked fabulous. I don't care how old she is, she looks fabulous. All that work has paid off. It has. So next, uh, you may have heard of him. His name is Bill Clinton.
1: President Clinton's turning 70. 70
2: this year. Wow. That's right. The the maybe first man to be is turning 70. It's a good year to turn 70.
1: And he's got the white hair to go with it.
2: He's got the white hair, yeah, and soon to maybe have a new job. I he don't may. know. Yeah. We'll see. I know. There's plenty of people. I'm not endorsing any candidate or any political party. What would be party. a first, though? It would be a first, and that would be kind of fun. It would be. Especially for him, because, yeah. I don't know, I just picture Hillary kicking him into the east wing out of the west wing. Stop, you are not the president.
1: Exactly.
2: Anymore. So Diane Keaton, may have heard of her. Yeah, great yeah. actress. Great actress. She's turning 70, but she started wearing turtlenecks when she was like 40. Uh, Pat Sajak. Can still turn those letters on Wheel of Fortune. Well, Vanna turns the letters. Well, that's true. He, he spins doesn't. the wheel. He spins the. Excuse me. He can still spin that wheel.
1: And remember, every prize you win is yours to keep.
2: <laughs> Thank you very much. Now, Patty Smith has kind of a. I'm trying to think who she sounds like. Rocker, singer. Um, who does she sound like? She sounds like Rod Stewart. That's who she oh. sounds like. If you don't know who Patty Smith is, I do not. You probably have heard her and thought it was Rod Stewart. Um, <laughs> Suzanne <laughs> Summers. Oh, you know, and I know she's had some health problems along the way. Well, turning um, seventy. Turning seventy. Oliver Stone, you know, so the movie producer sure from Vietnam. Yeah, he may have. He, he may have, have fabricated yeah. that. He may have. Uh, another uh, movie director producer, Steven Spielberg. Wow. Turns seventy this year. I know, and you think of him as perpetually young. He and looks like ET-ish. my cousin.
1: He's a twin for my cousin Richard.
2: Oh, he looks like your cousin Richard.
1: Yeah, exa- same beard. Does everything. he sound
2: like Rod Stewart? No. Okay. How, he sings
1: like Patti Smith. How
2: about somebody who just picked up an award? Sylvester Stallone. Did you know he was seventy?
1: That was cool that he got a gold. That
2: award. was, and he was yeah. very emotional about yeah, that. He so was. that was nice. And then somebody who's probably still tapping around. Ben Vereen is seventy. And then there's a few people on my list that, as I said before we went on air, I'm not reading the people who, if they were still alive, would be seventy. Because that's kind of cheating, or I'm not sure they're not seventy. They're so,
1: rolling right. is checking if Ben Vereen is still alive. Ben. Roland Ruiz, our technical director,
2: because you have some on the list who are dead, right? Yeah, but he's not one. They say oh. if they're dead. For okay. I, I'll just give you a hint Freddie Mercury. Yeah, he's gone. He is definitely <laughs> gone and definitely not 70. But he would have been and I'm 70. sorry, I would have loved if he was still here yeah, in 70. Me too. Yeah. So, that you know, if you're turning 70 or you you know.
1: This Justin, Ben Vereen is alive. Is
2: alive. I, I thought he was, but anyway. Yeah. So that was, I just thought that was fun.
1: That is interesting.
2: Yeah, a lot of people, you just, you know, it's. You don't think about people's ages a lot of times that are in the public eye.
1: I, I get the AARP magazine every month. You're old enough to get it as well. And they always have a cover <laughs> shot of some celebrity. Yes. Who looks fabulous. Fabulous. Thank God for Photoshop, right?
2: Yeah. We, well, I'm sure AARP does not Photoshop o- older, fabulous people. No, They're of course fabulous not. in their own right. Yeah, Surely exactly. you just.
1: But those pictures always make you think, wow. Wow.
2: Well, I know. I know. But it, it's its so the rule is if it's possible for one, it's possible for some others of us to also be fabulous. So why not?
1: Speaking of turning 70 and aging, you have surprising secrets, at least two, to aging well.
2: Well, what's surprising about the secrets is they're from a 90-year-old physical therapist. So I think that gives her great credibility to tell us you know, what the secrets are. So number, there's actually two that she had that I thought were really interesting. Number one was she said walking 20 minutes a day may save your life. So after working as a physical therapist forever, she was talking about the importance of walking. And for those of you who are still trying to keep those (laughs) New Year's resolutions, it's February now. And most of us have given up. But if you're still at it. Still wanting to exercise, there you go. 20 minutes of walking, how hard can it be? And
1: you don't have to be in a gym. You can walk in your neighborhood.
2: You don't have to be in a gym. But now, this is totally off the cuff. My son last night informed me what the word gymnasium means. And I hope he's not lying, because if you're going to call and tell me that he was absolutely wrong, supposedly it is Greek for naked squirrels. People exercising <laughs> because in the old Greek days, you know, everybody was all buff and they wanted to show off. The
1: Olympics uh, So that's, why I, were that's naked.
2: Why, that's right. So that's why we oh. wear, used to wear spandex because we can really be naked because it's illegal. But it's the next best thing. So gymnasium. A
1: woman I know teaches kickboxing and refused to teach in a gym because she said, you know, they're filled with gym divas.
2: Oh, yes. When we know those people. We do. We just don't look at them when we're at the gym. We try not to. Yeah. So, walking outside, you can avoid the gym divas. But the one that I really liked, and I've read this other places and, and just remembered it from reading her column, was instead of using a cane for older people who have uh, balance problems or mobility problems, use ski poles. So oh. number one, um, that you can they adjust easily to your height, so you get that ninety degree angle, which helps keep you upright. They've got you know better grippers, the little prongs on the bottom, and you can actually get walkers. If you've seen people um, practicing walking in a park, they've got adap- you can adapt your ski poles, and you put a little rocker on the bottom, and it actually rolls off the sidewalk. So you don't need snow; that's not required. But it's think how much cooler you look. I mean, ski poles are for fit, active people, right? Cane, ooh, old person, trouble walking. So I know we're in an ageist society, but maybe that'll make you or your loved one feel better about themselves if they're using ski poles in both hands, too. So it's cane in one hand. I just think there's lots of benefits, and I thought it was fabulous that she uh, reminded me of the ski poles instead of a cane
1: you've just joined us and wondering what you're listening to, What am listening to? S.O.S. On Air, brought to you by the WellMed Charitable Foundation on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron. Along with Carol Zornio, we're going to welcome another Carol on board in just a couple of moments. Carol Birch, who is an elder law attorney uh, here in San Antonio. And we will talk with her about elder law, the issues she sees, and a whole lot of other stuff. You see people now, more and more canes have adapted to be more than just a point at the end. You see pronged two three or four prongs prongs, the yes they the have cane, the prongs yes which and that provides better stability
2: that's right and i don't know the whole candy cane looking cane really is it's always the wrong height i don't know i think right. people trade them it's like oh uncle you know fred had a cane use this and you know they're either too tall too short people don't realize you actually have to fit the walking stick whatever it is right. to the person they pay no attention yeah to that. they just you know any cane will do
1: Now, you have the answer to long-term care. Two misconceptions about long-term care?
2: I do have two misconceptions about long-term care. Um, and, oh, gosh, I was going to tell you his name. C- oh. Siddipto Banerjee. Oh, I was just massacred that name, didn't I? Um, this is from Next Avenue, and he is somebody who is well-known in the aging field and is very concerned about these misconceptions about long-term care. And I'm willing to bet that Carol has already <laughs> discovered these um, in her law practice. That would be
1: Carol Birch, our upcoming guest. Up-
2: upcoming guest, yes. So, misconception number one is very few people end up needing long-term care. And we talked about this a few weeks ago because they were asking people, how likely do you think it is that you're going to need long-term care? And it was like 70% of people said, oh, that's not going to be... People in their 50s said they're not going to need it. So a study by the National Bureau of Economic Research showed that for for a 50-year-old has a 59% chance of needing long-term care. So more than half percent chance, right? Um, and that pr- after the age of 85, it goes as high as 62 percent.
1: Well, that would make sense, I well, guess. It, well,
2: it does make sense, So, but it is a misconception that you will never need long-term care, um, and if you're hedging your bets, I would hedge in the other direction of might need it, because it can be quite a shock if you haven't planned ahead.
1: But hypothetically, if, if you were 73, let's just pick a number out of the air. Uh, and you don't have any preparation and money and insurance for long term care. What are you going to do? We'll find out. Well, when I was going to say I'm going to ask
2: Carol Birch. I'm going to give her a call and ask her exactly. You know, you know, point me in the right direction. So misconception number two, and we repeat this often, it bears repeating, is that people think that Medicare pays for long term care. I was um, recently in Wisconsin visiting some of my older relatives, and we invited friends over, and one of them said, well, Medicare will pay for the nursing home costs because they paid for me when I got out of the hospital. Yes, they do uh, when you leave the hospital for a limited number of days, but if you have to live in a long-term care facility permanently, no, 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 Medicare does not pay for that. And they were shocked. And they were shocked. Yeah, she actually did not believe me when I said, I don't believe that's correct, so she said no no I know and I said oh dear.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So and it
2: doesn't Medicare does not pay for long term. No, it does not. It does not.
1: And it's a obviously a big eye opener. Now you've got a really neat uh topic or two coming up on caregiver teleconnection which is the telephone
2: system So telephone education and support. Yes. So get on the phone, talk to an expert like a Carol Birch, um, and talk to other caregivers. So coming up in February, we have um, cardiovascular health with a well-med doctor, Dr. Okuna, is going to be talking with us. Um, and then the subject you don't get to talk about very often, a caregiver's approach to sex, dementia, and intimacy. And that will be with Dr. Yvonne Lozano, PhD, who knows a lot about this particular subject. Interesting. So if you're interested in sex, intimacy, and don't want to talk talk to about it to anybody else, here's a safe, confidential way on the caregiver teleconnection.
1: And dementia gets to the question of consent.
2: Well, yes, but that's a whole another path. But a lot of people with dementia have, you know, demonstrate and and have needs. So, you know, you want to be able to address that issue.
1: That's coming up on caregiver teleconnection. You want to know more about it, go to?
2: Just call 866 390-6491, 390-6491, that's 866-390-6491, or caregiversos.org.
1: She's Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. and you're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air. Carol Birch, Elder Law Attorney, up next on 930 AM, The Answer.
3: Ten years ago, Dr. George Rapier founded the WellMed Charitable Foundation. His goal, to support seniors and their caregivers in our community. Today, the WellMed Charitable Foundation has contributed millions to local senior programs that focus wellness, prevention, and living with chronic illness. Their programs improve the lives of our aging population and the people that care for them. Programs like Caregiver SOS Resource Centers, which offer complimentary support programs for those caring for loved ones with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, as well as stroke, cancer, diabetes, chronic lung disease, and heart disease. San Antonio has six Caregiver SOS resource centers to help you. For locations or more information, go to caregiversos.org. That's caregiversos.org or call 866-390-6491. And for more information on how the WellMed Charitable Foundation is impacting San Antonio seniors and how you can help out, go to wellmedcharitablefoundation.org.
1: Well, we are so pleased you are with us on Caregiver SOS On Air today. I'm Ron Aaron along with our co host Carol Zerniel, and we have a very special guest joining us who is a specialist in elder law. Her name is Carol Birch. She is an attorney, earned her Doctor of Jurisprudence from the University of Texas Law School in 1992. So she's had some experience with the law. And she has decided uh, to become a specialist in working with seniors. I began that focus in 1996 when she started her own practice. She's a member of a number of groups like the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys, Barrett County Women's Bar Association, San Antonio Bar Association, and uh, a whole lot more. When I was a kid growing up in in obits in the Cleveland Plain Dealer, people would also list. And he was a member of the Book of the Month Club.
2: Remember that. Yeah, yeah they People don't have do those anymore. No, it's gone. So, did you drop that off your list, Carol? <laughs>
4: you know, my parents were members of the Book of Months Club. Of course they I was, were. I was, I, was mem- I was a member. I was a member. I remember love that.
1: You had to remember to send the book back. That's why they went out of business because the F- uh, uh, TC ruled that that really was an inappropriate way to market your services, because if you didn't send the book back, you had to pay for, you had it. To pay for it.
2: That's right. I, have still, I still have yeah. some books that I really didn't want that right. I had to pay for, but there are also no books anymore. So if you if you don't yeah. know where any books are, you don't have a library near you, I still have some old book of the month club exactly books. exactly right. <laughs> so
1: thanks for coming in.
4: You're welcome. It's my I, pleasure. I, I had
1: mentioned to you when, uh, when you walked in earlier that uh, I, I enjoyed so much your presentation at the Caregiver SOS Summit this past fall. And you've been on several of the teleconnections.
4: Yeah, one at least.
1: And what is it that attracted you, other than you've dyed your hair a little gray, (laughs) to fit in with seniors? What is it about
3: elder law?
4: Wow, you didn't tell me you were going to ask me that. Um, it was an obvious question oh. <laughs> I don't know I Look, got You're at a lucky.
2: cocktail
1: party You're talking to someone And hey, what do you do we, but uh, probably, yeah, yeah. we
2: don't say we work with yeah. older people That's Because right. I've told you They'll run and The girl says I'm a
1: gerontologist And all of a sudden she's alone <laughs> So what really what did attract you Because you're not um, that old
4: No and when I started I was even younger Right. Uh, right. 20 years ago Yeah. So um, I was just lucky
1: it's a growth industry now.
4: Yeah, it, and I was lucky that way too. But I was lucky in that um, I really like elders, and I really feel comfortable around them. I don't like young people. Is the, that okay to say? Yeah, yeah, it's you all can right. Say to, say yeah, that. it's
2: all right to say. Yeah, that's fine. I know, because you know, and I was in school. I <laughs> uh, my. Uh, whatever you call it, mentor, guide, whatever, in college, was always like, you you don't want to work. She'd say, you don't want to work with those old people. You need to be a social worker and work with young children. I'm like, I don't want to work with children. And she just could not understand that at all. Well, today,
1: if they remade The Graduate, Mr. Robinson would say, uh, not plastics, he'd say elder law, right? He would. It's a growth industry.
4: It is. I'm lucky to be in it. I'm grateful.
1: Well, tell me, when when people think about uh, the issues they face growing older, they don't automatically think of an elder law attorney, but there are a number of of things that come up in our lives where we should.
4: I agree. I think that I just had a call today from a woman whose mom gave her her house, and then mom died, and I had to ask her, well, what exactly did she do to give you her house? And, well, we notarized a piece of paper And I suggested that if you're dealing with something as expensive and important as a house, it might be worth it to talk to a lawyer before you give it to your kid. Because
1: houses don't transfer without deeds and titles and what have you.
4: Just notarizing a piece of paper is not sufficient.
2: And then giving things away may – you might have to pay some some taxes,
4: gift taxes, some other things that maybe you weren't expecting. It could impact your eligibility for Medicaid to pay for your long-term care if you need that. In this case, she was lucky. Mom went and died, but
2: it could have been yes. But if mom had wanted, had needed to go to the nursing home, then mom would have had to pay for the next five years because she gave her house away
4: mm-hmm. without yeah.
2: well,
1: selling at market price. Because folks listening won't understand that. So, uh, if and this was a question that I know Carol mm-hmm. wanted the answer to, which was uh, how how do you spend down and, and explain why that's important if somebody doesn't really have the money for long-term care or nursing home care. Medicaid will cover it, but there's a catch.
4: There is a catch. Medicaid doesn't want to cover it if you can afford to cover it yourself. Now, if you're a couple and one spouse has to go into the nursing home, they do prevent what they call spousal impoverishment, and they do that by making sure that the spouse at home is allowed to keep a certain amount for sure. And then the spouse in the nursing home can spin down. But you don't want to give away your assets because if you do that, Medicaid says you've got enough to give away. You don't need our help. Wow. So, you know, I just... One of the pieces that I
2: pulled today in preparation for the show was the cost of long-term care. So, you know, why would people even worry about spending down? Um, in some parts of the country, a, a nursing home, the average cost of a nursing home care, a private room, is $94,000. Wow. Um, in other places, a semi-private room, 82000 Assisted living, 41000 Adult ca- Adult daycare, 18000 and care in the home is approximately twenty nine thousand. So the average person, like if I'm a spouse and my uh, my spouse has to go into a facility or get care at home, um, then I'm going to spend probably twenty four thousand, at least twenty four thousand a year of my, and you know that's about all my social security, probably or more than my social security.
4: Yeah, yeah, it's expensive.
1: I recently wrote a piece, right for local community news, and did a piece on. Uh, nursing homes, memory units, Alzheimer's uh, care facilities. And, and you're talking six, seven, eight thousand 8000 a month. In our area. Not a area. lot of people can afford that here. Right. Yeah. It's real dollars.
2: Right. And it in is. Carol's
1: case, she's made clear her husband, Ernie, knows he's going in a home because she's <laughs> not <laughs> yes, caring my, for him.
2: Me, <laughs> me Carol. Yes. Oh, yeah. so I've told right. my husband that I'm going to put <laughs> him in. I'm, I'm, You know, get ready, pack your bags. The minute you get Alzheimer's, off you go.
1: Yeah, I'm not... Breaking any confidence here. she said it on the
0: air
2: many times. <laughs> right. But getting back to Carol Birch, yes. um, you know, that's one of the things that an elder law attorney can do is in advance, you know, one of the things that my husband and I need to do is go visit Carol and talk to her about, you know, getting, because I do, I would seriously put him in a nursing home if he had Alzheimer's eventually. Um, and so it would be good for me to come talk to her now. Uh, and kind of lay out the land and, and get some idea of what documents I need and what I would need to do uh, to make that possible, you know, pay my fair share. But if I don't have 98000 a year to spend on a nursing home.
1: How would you structure that situation? How would situation? I structure that? Right. Mm-hmm. Do people come to you with that?
4: Yeah, they sure do. Um, In
1: enough time to take care of their issues?
4: Some come in enough time. Most people come to me when it's a crisis, when mom just broke her hip and is going uh, to need to stay into the nursing home. And how are they going to pay for that?
2: So what can people do? Let's say, you know, the person that just broke their hip, um, they need to go into a nursing home now. Is there, are there any mechanisms
4: that they might be able to use to help um, offset some of that? Yes, you know, especially if the couple's combined monthly income is below a certain amount this year it's, 2980 dollars and 50, no yeah, 2980 dollars and 50 cents a month. If their combined monthly income is below that, we can preserve a lot of assets for both of them, probably as much as they have. But if their combined monthly income exceeds that amount, then we have to try some other steps. So
2: preserving assets is one of the things um, that you help families do or any elder law attorney would help a family do. Yes, that's true.
1: And you deal with uh, certainly the issues related to uh, when someone's incapacitated. uh, They'll need a power of attorney. They'll need someone who can manage their medical and personal affairs. Ideally, they take care of that when both the parties are competent.
4: Well, they definitely take care of it when when the party giving power of attorney is competent, because if it's too late, if you're incapacitated, then you don't get to give a power of attorney.
1: And in those cases, you need a court order?
4: In those cases, oftentimes we end up with a guardianship, which involves the court, yes.
1: Which can get complicated,
4: expensive right? and expensive. Well, tell tell me what a power of attorney is. What does that do? Why would I want that? Well, it's a piece of paper that authorizes someone to handle your business affairs for you or your medical decisions for you if you're not able to, if you're incapacitated. And you want that because we never know what's going to happen. We never know when something might happen and we become incapacitated and somebody has to make sure our bills get paid.
2: So one of the things I know you mentioned at the summit that I thought was interesting was you were saying that you wanted that power of attorney, so I decide who I want to be my power of attorney if something happens to me. and make those decisions, and I might not want the same person for finances as health. I might want somebody else making a health decision that
4: doesn't have the purse strings. That's true. That's true. And they really require two different skill right. sets.
1: We'll talk about that in just a minute. We're going to uh, do a little business at our end, come right back to you. Delighted to have Carol Birch, uh, Elder Law Attorney, here in our Caregiver SOS on Air studios. I'm Ron Aaron. Along with Carol Zernio, you can hear podcasts of all of these shows, uh, Caregiver SOS on Air. All you have to do is go to iTunes, type in Caregiver SOS on Air, or go to Player FM if you have an Android phone. And that will work, they tell me, too, right? Right. That's what they tell us. 9.30 a.m., the answer. That's where you find us. Well, thank you for keeping our dial set for you to listen to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel on 930 AM The Answer. Carol Birch, an elder law attorney, is with us in our Caregiver SOS On Air studios. She's here in San Antonio. We'll give you a phone number later in the show, and folks can call Uh, you don't send them a bill when they call you to say hi,
4: right? Well, I am a lawyer. Oh. Okay. (laughs)
2: Not the, at least not the first time. Not the first yeah, time. You at least you've got to get the bank account number. Yeah, exactly. So, so, so Carol and I were talking about powers of attorney yes. and, and financial powers of attorney versus healthcare powers of attorney. And you
1: need different people.
2: And you, you, m- you might Maybe. want different Maybe. people because they're different skill sets. Um, and that's to make your decisions, you know, should you become incapacitated. But something you said at the Caregiver Summit was that you wanted it, I think you said the word was springing, you want it to take effect you might want to take it, have it take effect immediately as opposed to waiting until you're incapacitated.
4: Yes, your medical power of attorney is springing, meaning it only becomes effective upon incapacity. But you want your financial power of attorney to be effective immediately immediately. And the reason for that is it makes it more uh, likely that third parties will accept it and will honor it when your agent walks into the bank and says, hey, I need to transact this business.
2: Right. And I know that my father handles the financial affairs for my uncle, who is in a nursing home. And he is in a nursing home in Wisconsin, and my father's in Texas. And it's very difficult for him to conduct business um, for my uncle, he, you know, having that, getting the banks to honor it, the insurance companies, anybody to recognize that he has that power of attorney, he has to send them, you know, information and verify who he is. It it's really can be quite burdensome.
1: But there's a reason for that, and that's the scams that oh, abso- uh, are out there no, no, no. ripping off seniors.
2: Yeah, absolutely. But anything that makes it easier for the person who is actually trying to do the work of the power of attorney, you know, I'm all for that.
4: Yeah, and it's true that there's a lot of scams, but you're usually – you want to be really careful when you appoint an agent under a power of attorney and appoint someone who you know is trustworthy. The Some people in APS call powers of attorney licenses to steal. That's
1: Adult Protective Services.
4: Indeed. They <laughs> call powers of attorney For licenses to For those who may not have the program
1: steal. in front of them. <laughs>
4: To steal. And unfortunately, that's the case. But that's because some folks make poor choices or they let the bad kid stick it in front of them and say, here, mom, sign here. And they don't say, well, first, I want to talk to my elder law attorney.
1: And do those documents have to be notarized, witnessed?
4: Your financial power of attorney needs to be notarized and it can also be witnessed. I have mine witnessed and notarized to enhance the likelihood of acceptance your medical power of attorney can either be witnessed or notarized.
1: And we, we have talked before about medical powers of attorney, and you want to be careful uh, who you appoint because if you have, for example, uh, end-of-life provisions, you have an advance directive and you made very clear what you want to have happen, uh, often if you appoint a loved one or someone close to you, they may not follow through on, on what your wishes are because they don't want to let you go.
4: Well, it is a really hard thing but you've got to appoint someone who's going to be an advocate for you.
2: Right. I know um, I have my I talk about my great aunt. I hope my great aunt doesn't know how much I talk about her on the air. But (laughs) um, but she you know, she's picked somebody who is not a family member. Um, for both of those powers of attorney because she didn't want to burden the family members, and it was really a business arrangement. She picked um, an elder law attorney uh, that's also a friend of hers that she felt would respect her wishes for her health care wishes, um, and then somebody else for finances. Well, cool. And she felt that that was important to ha- to not have the emotional conflict that can occur when you appoint a family member, which was an interesting
4: perspective. I think it's a good perspective, but folks also have to be aware of the... The, the, how that's going to tear at the family members. Right, if they're, they're not, not involved in the decision. Exactly.
2: Right,
1: right. That's a good point.
2: So you can tell she's already seen it all. Yeah. <laughs> well, well. So I'm going to go back to something we were talking about earlier. You, we, we, you briefly ran across spousal impoverishment. Can can we just talk? Because I know there's so much fear out there. You know, if I, I'm not going to put my loved one in a nursing home because the state's going to come after my house and I'm going to be poor. And we just hear that again and again. Um, from the caregivers that we work with. So, for example, in Texas, um, if, you know, mom goes in the nursing home and dad's still at home, what's the threshold of, of income that he can keep? And what really happens on mom's side in terms of Medicaid taking over? What's the state might or might not do?
4: Well... You didn't exactly ask this question, but I think you're talking about estate recovery. Yes, Medicaid estate recovery uh-huh. and
2: and the sp- espousal impoverishment. So, what does he get to keep?
4: Okay, he gets to. It's a little bit complicated, but basically, he gets to keep one half of the total countable assets up to uh, an amount that changes each year. This year, it's one hundred and nineteen thousand two hundred and twenty dollars. She keeps. Two thousand dollars. She can have access to no more than two thousand per month. But, no total assets. Oh, yeah, total assets. Total assets. His income can be whatever he brings in. He keeps his income. It's her income that might go to the nursing home or might be diverted to him, depending on how much he has. That goes back to that twenty nine eighty I mentioned. Mm-hmm. But I want to be sure that people understand that while you are living. The state is not going to take your house. There is no estate recovery. So if she dies first and dad's still living, he's in the house, or even if he's not in the house, he's still living, the house there's no estate recovery. He keeps the house. So you're never gonna be kicked out on the street because your spouse went on to Medicaid.
2: That's correct. And there are conditions under which even after he passes
4: the house may be able to stay in the family. That's true. There are several exceptions. If you have an unmarried child who's been with the family, who's lived in the house for more than 12 months, um, there's also something we can do called a ladybird deed that uh, passes the house outside of probate, so it avoids estate recovery that way.
2: And so you What's can a read-
1: ladybird deed?
4: Well, I'm not going to get too technical on you. I don't Thank know you. if you can understand it. That's kind it. of you. <laughs> but... It's a way that we can pass the house outside of probate so that it immediately upon the death of the grantor, the parents, passes to the kids.
1: And probate doesn't touch it.
4: Probate doesn't, doesn't touch, it. touch it. And Medicaid estate recovery doesn't touch it either. That's correct. Ever? Ever.
1: Because you're selling to some third party somewhere.
4: Yeah. Well, yeah. you could. the kids could then sell it if they want to. Oh, cool.
2: So see, Nobody avoid,
4: knows that. No, very
2: few people know that, and that's why you know we do talk about the importance of elder law attorneys on the show. It's one of the reasons we wanted to have Carol uh, give us examples because there are just so many things that we don't know. It's very specialized, and a lot of people do try to do things less expensively on the internet pull down documents read information but you know as a professional in the field of aging I certainly would not recommend doing that there there are times when it's really pays it's worth the investment to spend the money Um, and I think talking to someone like Carol and an elder law attorney to get your finances and your legal issues all lined up, particularly for caregivers out there. Mm -hmm. Because think of the worry you have. You're a caregiver. You're caring for your spouse. You're caring for your parents. I mean, do you see families that are just stressed in crisis? What's that like?
4: Well, I was going to say it's almost draining for my staff because folks are in such crisis, they are in such pain, and they really need a lot of hand-holding, which can be draining for my staff. But on the other hand, it's so gratifying to be able to help them that that sort of cuts the Right, because the, once the they drain. get things
2: settled, they know what's going to happen. You know, the, One of the biggest issues with caregivers is that feeling that there's no solid ground underneath our feet. Yes. You know, we're taking care of someone and we just don't know what's going to happen. Nothing feels right. Uh, And it can be very, very uh, mind-easing to have someone say, this is what's going to happen. You know, good, bad, whatever, at least you know, and you can move forward from that.
4: Yeah, I think that one thing we give that's most important to our clients is peace of mind.
2: What are some
1: examples of what causes these kind of familial crises? The the feeling of stress, uh, drowning, quicksand?
4: Well, a lot of what Carol just said feeling like you don't really know what the next step is. You don't really know what you're supposed to be doing. I think that most of my clients, the children or the, the spouses who are caregivers, just feel extremely tired. They're exhausted all the time, and then they're required to think through things like a Medicaid application, which isn't that complicated, but it's a lot of, of tedious questions And it's overwhelming to have to face that along with everything else. Uh,
1: Are are there categories of typical kinds of problems that come to your office?
4: Yes. um, Folks come to me for things like wills and trusts, powers of attorney. They come to me for things like um, uh, long-term care planning, Medicaid, that kind of thing, uh, guardianship, and also uh, probate when someone's died.
1: And and guardianship, uh, for folks who are listening... Uh, Who may not understand what's involved. If uh, you're concerned that your mom or your dad can no longer care for themselves, can no longer make decisions, uh, they haven't done anything about powers of attorney, uh, what can you do and how does that work?
4: Well, we really want to avoid guardianship if we can. We're going to try everything else. Uh, Even if the person has some limited capacity, we're going to see if we can't do a financial or medical power of attorney because guardianship is so expensive and so onerous. And now the laws since 2015, the legislature has made it even harder to uh, get a guardianship because they want to keep – a person to the least restrictive alternative but getting a guardianship means you're going in front of the court you're saying judge this person can't manage the, for themselves I should be appointed to take care of it
1: I'm thinking of the case I got a lot of attention here involving uh, Tom Benson uh, Cincinnati, New Orleans. I mean, San Antonio, New Orleans is where mm-hmm. he hangs out most of the time. Yeah. Uh, owns the New Orleans wealthy, Saints. owns the Saints, owns mm-hmm. the— uh, The Vikings,
2: uh, or did own the Vikings. Oh, that somebody no, that that's he owns somebody else. No, that's McCombs. San Antonio. We own he owns a
1: sports. basketball team down there. Mm-hmm. He, he does. Uh, he owns a lot of uh, uh, banks and what have you. So it got a lot of publicity, a lot of attention, uh, where the family was claiming he was incapacitated.
4: Yeah, and...
1: After he said he was disinheriting his his <laughs> daughters.
4: <laughs> that was a, a, a really sad case, but really representative of uh, what we see when we have someone with diminished capacity.
1: And ultimately, they, they apparently have settled it. That's it was true. sad, and I felt terrible. And, and uh, I think the uh, the thing that drove the case to settlement was... Uh, that they finally had an order that he'd have to give a deposition.
4: That's correct,
2: and then he and then it would become very apparent whether he had capacity other. or not. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. But I think the point that you you know you bring up there is that family dynamics. You know, having a third party like an elder law attorney can help relieve some of that awful. We don't agree as a family on every decision, and who gets what. You know, it it take, can. It can really ease that family tension and and smooth over some of the ups and downs of being a wonderful, happy family, but not all the time.
4: Yeah, I think so. I think it's very helpful for the parents to hear a third-party perspective and get a little bit of uh, Mm -hmm. peace of mind again about, yeah, this is okay for you to do. You don't have to do what the kids say. I like that. Or the bumper
1: sticker that says we're spending our kids' inheritance.
4: I strongly encourage it. (laughs) That's right. Spend the money.
1: Folks, want to get a hold of you? You have a website and you have a phone number.
4: We have a website. It's AssistingSeniors.com. And our phone number is 210-892-4555.
1: 892-4555.
4: That's it. I like that.
1: Carol Birch, thank you very much. AssistingSeniors.com. Com.
4: Thanks for coming
2: in. My pleasure. Thank you. We really enjoyed it. And nice to see you again. I'm Ron Aaron, (laughs)
1: along with Carol Zorniel. A big thank you to Carol Birch. Up next, Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman on 930 AM,
3: The Answer. Ten years ago, Dr. George Rapier founded the WellMed Charitable Foundation. His goal? To support seniors and their caregivers in our community. Today, the WellMed Charitable Foundation has contributed millions to local senior programs that focus wellness, prevention, and living with chronic illness. Their programs improve the lives of our aging population and the people that care for them. Programs like Caregiver SOS Resource Centers, which offer complimentary support programs for those caring for loved ones with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, as well as stroke, cancer, diabetes, chronic lung disease, and heart disease. San Antonio has six Caregiver SOS resource centers to help you. For locations or more information, go to caregiversos.org. That's caregiversos.org or call 866-390-6491. And for more information on how the WellMed Charitable Foundation is impacting San Antonio seniors and how you can help out, go to wellmedcharitablefoundation.org.
1: This is the fun part of our program. Not that all of Caregiver SOS on air isn't fun, but Take 10, which we do at the end of each of our shows. Ten minutes with Carol Zernial, a nationally known psychotherapist, expert on addictions and on caregiving. Dr. Jamie Heisman, kick around the topic, and we hope you enjoy this part of the program. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernial, and Dr. Jamie Heisman is with us. And, Carol, you threw out a, a, an interesting topic, which is so true, it's scary. Why do we find so much depression uh, among caregivers and their care recipients?
2: Well, you know, this is really the common denominator uh, in aging and in caregiving. It is that depression is very, very high in both sets. And so, Jamie, you know, why, why do, you know, we see depression in older people in the care recipients. So why, you know, is that something new is it different you know why is that and then what might be some of the causes of depression in caregivers
5: you know this is an ideal topic uh... especially now in the news that we're looking at um, there's been a recommendation from washington dc to primary care doctors to screen now everybody for clinical depression i mean for one time it was pregnant moms obviously for postpartum which is a dangerous dangerous condition which can create either homicidal rage or, or, or suicidal um, sort of, uh, of energy. But right now, we're looking at the entire population. And to your question, Carol, depression is, is all about also unresolved loss, unresolved grief as we grow older, we grieve things that we had in our lives but don't have people that were in our lives that aren't today. Um, and I think we have to discern for this particular segment, are we talking about clinical? biochemical, endogenous depression, or are we talking about situational depression? Because situational depression we find is rampant, but uh, but there is clear diagnostic criteria around biochemical depression.
1: Tell us what the differences are between those labels.
5: Well, well biochemical depression, is, I think the easiest way to discern this, Ron, is if you see and perceive somebody with signs of depression, which may be, you know, lack of sleep, it might be Uh, isolation, feeling low, uh, far beyond the blues, if you will, Um, and and somebody who who obviously is is crying all the time. If you see these behavioral characteristics for at least two weeks or greater, um, our DSM-5, which is a Diagnostic Statistical Manual for Mental Health, says that that is biochemical depression and needs an assessment and evaluation immediately. Um, The other side of it, the flip side, which is more situational depression, we all go through. We're all labile. We all go ups and downs, um, have good days, sometimes bad days, um, feel beaten up. You know, sometimes you get the bear or the bear gets you. Uh, That's a different sort of thing episodically. Also, biochemical depression has a greater link to genetics. Um, And it usually actually, oddly enough, is disproportionately a sex-linked depression, which means it comes through the mother's side disproportionately, not always.
2: So, um, so there's this, what you've described in depression um, is is very, very common and people don't really recognize it. I know we've talked in the past. So the situational depression, when you're an older person and you've had the losses, like you've described loss of functioning, loss of friends, loss of family. you know, maybe loss of driving, loss of vision, and so now you can't do the activities. All of that accumulates, whereas, you know, at younger ages, we might get hit with one or two things in in the elderly. It can just bump up against each other one after the other and cause um, depression. And and for that kind of depression, uh, you know, obviously treatment and support groups but that kind of situational, there there are interventions, you know, we, we can grieve, we can let people know we're grieving and go through that grief, um, and that process can help. But there's also actually some other things that we can do, such as, Jamie, what would you recommend for those that are just really, it is situational, they've, they've just had a tremendous loss in their life?
5: Well, you know, it's not surprising that women and, and, and men uh, have clinical depression as we get older. And there is, to me at least, a um, a real high need for us to, to wake up and smell the coffee because there's a huge suicide rate in seniors today that, that's very, very scary. Um, with men over the age of 85, the suicide rate is 45 out of, out of 100,000, but that, that's very, very high. Well, and, they, and older men
2: are the most successful, so not only do they have the higher rate, but they actually complete. They're more successful in their suicide attempts.
5: Absolutely, Carol. Absolutely, and um, often, you know, as you said, even with women, uh, it, they, though it's tragic, no matter how you look at it, uh, it is often a cry for help. And and you you'll see one the man will use a gun for the for or something like you said. It's very finite and done deal. And often with women, you'll see them um, you know use pharmaceuticals or or drugs and, and something that is more of that reach out for help. But to your point, uh, I truly believe the number one hedge. Uh, against depression um, is cognitive therapy and group work. Now, when I say group work, it's very difficult to find group therapy in many communities. Today. I am talking literally now about support groups. The beauty of Caregiver SOS and what you do in, in, in throughout the state of Texas is you provide support groups in real time. And you have people in all seats around you who can actually monitor They know the emotional ability of the person in front of them, and they can reflect back to them. So my number one thing is is to get therapy and to get somebody who's knowledgeable in geriatric care and get yourself a support
1: group. Let me come back to suicide for for just a quick moment because you laid out uh, what a huge risk and threat it is, especially to men 85 and over, for the caregiver. Uh, and for others who, who come in contact with that individual, what should they look for? What are the signs, and what should they do to intervene?
5: Well, in depression itself, it's a good question, Ron. Um, there are things to look for. There's an unusual fatigue that their loved you know that they, people know the, uh, how your loved one is or was. And, and if you see that fatigue entering or the energy getting lower and lower, that's something to be concerned about. Losing your interest in favorite activities. Um, is another huge one. Also look for unexplained uh, weight loss, um, change of sleep habits, um, feelings of worthlessness. And also, as we all know, and it seems to be something we hear but is very, very true, look for somebody who is actually starting to give away personal items and uh, of their own and understand, and this is very important, that not all people who are about to commit suicide are showing you overtly depression. Some of them have come to peace and are actually going to do it with a smile on their face.
2: Yeah, that's a very good point.
1: And the other thing that uh, I think it's important, and, and Carol, I didn't mean to jump in on this, but uh, to say to that individual, uh, are you thinking of killing yourself? Are you thinking of taking your own life? Uh, that won't trigger suicide, but you may get answers that lead you to get them help right away.
5: Touche, touche. I think we dance around this. Um, I do believe that a, a good clinician, again, and also support groups. I mean, there are intuitive groups that, that can understand and see this. And, and uh, I, I do think you should ask the question. And th- what we do as clinicians we will determine that people always, unfortunately, somehow, have suicidal ideations. It's kind of a fantasy. Um, you know, uh, this is going to kill me. If I don't get this, I'm going to hang myself. You hear things like that. And um, and those are not the things that, that, that we're talking about. So.
2: Well, um, so quickly, in just a little bit of time that we have, let's talk about the caregivers. So we see depression in caregivers as well, and it's probably, you know, the different causes, but there's situational depression that h- impacts the caregiver, correct?
5: Absolutely. And this is also, Carol, where burnout and compassion fatigue comes in. Um, you've heard me talking constantly about this, this topic, especially with caregivers. Um Compassion fatigue is, is, is like um, post-traumatic stress disorder, except compassion fatigue is being in the presence of somebody else's trauma that triggers your own, where PTSD is obviously internal. You've experienced the horrific issue, and, and either one of them, either one of these traumas could create fatal results. But um, caregivers are natural. I mean, let's face it, as soon as they find out they're a caregiver, it's like a two-by-four hitting them, that they have to then be concerned about their job, how their family is going to come around, how their relationship is with their family, and how the relationship is with their loved one. And many of them get resigned to this helplessness and hopelessness uh, when they don't have the proper support.
1: This is such a powerful topic. We should do this again because there's so much more to explore, Carol.
2: Well, absolutely. and I you know I know we're running out of time here, but the bottom line is that we'd like all the caregivers out there to have depression on their radar screen, uh, depression in their loved one or if they're feeling depressed. And no, they don't neither one of them has to feel that way. There are interventions, there is support. Um, and Jamie, a good website to go to if they wanted to find a therapist, someone to help intervene.
5: Well, actually, you can go to psychology today, put your zip code in, and see if they work with seniors. Um, I want to echo what you say before we end this segment. Look, depression is highly treatable, and there is nothing, I think, over the years that we've come further in, in terms of mental health, than the psychopharmacology associated with depression. You do not have to suffer with depression. It is important to get assessed, evaluated, get on the proper medication, get therapy. This is not a hopeless situation. In fact... Uh, it's become extraordinarily hopeful if you're compliant.
1: Got to stop you right there. That's the coda on this topic. Thank you. Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron with Carol Zernial. He's Dr. Jamie Heisman. You hear us on 930 AM, The Answer.
0: You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM The Answer.